everybody, this is Carmen LaSalle and welcome to San Francisco Liberation Radio. On March 4, 2005, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. spoke in Marin County, California at the Civic Center in San Rafael, just across the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco. Peter B. Collins, a local talk show host, introduces him on this San Francisco Liberation Radio production. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it is my distinct pleasure to welcome our keynote speaker this evening here in Marin County, California. He is the president of the Waterkeeper Alliance. He is the chief prosecuting attorney for Hudson Riverkeeper. And if you know about General Electric's deposit of PCBs in the Hudson, there's a whole lot of river to keep there. He also serves as a senior attorney to the Natural Resources Defense Council. He is a supervising attorney at the Pace Environmental Litigation Clinic at the Pace University School of Law. Please welcome Robert F. Kennedy, Jr. Thank you. Thanks very much. I'm, I'm so happy to be here tonight. I want to start by apologizing for my, my voice. I have a touch of laryngitis. <clears throat> but I hope my, my throat will warm up as, as we proceed. Um, I want to thank Water Planet and Sustainable Marin and, and Sierra Club, which has uh, just done it. You know, I work for NRDC, and Sierra Club has just been our partner and the, uh, and the best partner that we could ever have in, in fighting this administration over the last uh, four years in the Gingrich Congress since 19. Uh, 94, and uh, I want to thank Larry Vaughn for his kind words about me and for all that he's done for, for the environment, for what just that Sierra Club's, for the role that Sierra Club plays, not only with the environment, but in its commitment to our democracy and the principles of our country. And I also just want to thank all of you for giving me the opportunity to visit Marin. Uh, this is my favorite place in the country to visit. When I come over the, I was telling, I was telling that I spoke to a, a group of local politicians before, and I just told them that, that when I come over the Golden Gate Bridge and see Tiburon and Sausalito and those wonderful little towns and, and uh, that remind me of John Steinbeck and see these beautiful green hills, and, uh, and, uh, and every time I come here, meet these extraordinary people who have such a, an unusual commitment to community and to the values of our country. And, uh, it's really that this, this community is really the paradigm of, of you know, the best that America offers uh, to all of us and to the world. And I want to thank you for your commitment to those values and to your local environment. And, you know, I'm doing a book signing uh, after this. And I, I, my, my book, uh, which is called Crimes Against Nature, which I wrote last year, was published in August. The book, and that talks a lot about this administration, the, the book is not really about the environment uh, as much as it is about the corrosive impact of excessive corporate power on American democracy. And it's not a, it's not a partisan book. It's not, a, it's not about a Democrat attacking a Republican. I have been uh, disciplined. It, it attacks George Bush for sure. But I'm not attacking him because he's a Republican. I'm attacking him because he's just a, a catastrophe. I, I, and I, you know, I've been, I've been disciplined during 20, 21 years as an environmental advocate. 
I've been disciplined about being nonpartisan and bipartisan in my approach to these issues. I, I support both Republican and Democratic candidates uh, and have worked for both of them during elections. I, I don't believe that there's any such thing as Republican children or Democratic children. I think the worst thing that could happen to the environment is it becomes the province of a single political party. But you can't talk honestly about the environment in any context today without speaking critically of this president. This is the worst environmental president that we've had in American history. If you look at NRDC's website, you'll see over 400 major environmental rollbacks that have been promoted or implemented by this administration over the last four years as, a, as, as part of a deliberate, concerted effort to eviscerate 30 years of environmental law. It's a stealth attack. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the administration knows that, and the Gallup poll says 81% of Republicans want stronger environmental laws and want them strictly enforced. And the administration, as I show in my book, received a memo from Frank Luntz, who's the primary Republican pollster, saying, if we openly attack the environment, we're going to pay the price at the polls. And so they, and he recommended that they, that, that they, if they're going to eviscerate the environmental laws, that they do it through a stealth attack. And they've used all kinds of ingenious stealth mechanisms to, to mask this radical agenda from the American people, including Orwellian rhetoric. When they want to destroy the air, they call it the Clear Skies Bill. When they want to destroy the forest, they call it the Healthy Forest Act. But most insidiously, they've put polluters in charge of virtually all the agencies that are supposed to protect Americans from pollution. The head of the Forest Service is Mark Ray, a timber industry lobbyist, who's the, probably the most rapacious timber industry lobbyist in history. The head of public lands is a mining industry lobbyist, uh, Stephen Griles, who believes that public lands are unconstitutional. The head of the air division at EPA is a utility lobbyist who's represented nothing but the worst air polluters in America. The head of uh, the woman who Bush appointed to run Superfund, Marianne Harinko, is a woman whose last job was teaching corporate polluters how to evade Superfund. The second in command of EPA is a Monsanto lobbyist. And if you look at all of the subsecretariats and agency heads throughout all the major departments of government, uh, uh, the Department of Agriculture, Department of Energy, Department of Interior, and the EPA, of course, and the relevant uh, divisions of the Justice Department, you'll find the same thing in virtually every case. It's the lobbyists for the regulated industries that are running the agencies that are supposed to protect us, the American people, from pollution. And these are, you know, there's nothing wrong with having business people in government. It's a good thing if your if you're, uh, uh, objective is to recruit expertise and, and competence. But these individuals, as I show in my book, in every one of these cases, have entered government service not to serve the public interest, but rather to subvert the very laws they're charged with enforcing in order to enrich the, the administration's corporate paymasters. And, and they've already caused profound diminution in the quality of life in our country over the past four years, directly as a result of their decisions and their policies. Most Americans don't know it because we have a negligent and indolent press in this country that has absolutely refused to cover the environment. And you know, particularly the broadcast media, which has completely let down the American people and, and let down our democracy. Um, and, and this happened that the devolution began 
when Ronald Reagan abolished the Fairness Doctrine in 1988. And the Fairness Doctrine you know, required that the broadcast media use, uh, that, 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 the, that the airwaves belong to the public and the broadcast media uh, use the airwaves, but only with the proviso that they serve the public interest, that they inform the public about important issues, that they promote and advance our democracy and promote the public interest. Ronald Reagan abolished that. So nowadays, the corporate broadcasters have no obligation to the public. Their only obligation is to their shareholders, and they meet that obligation by increasing viewership to sell more ad revenue. Well, how do you increase viewership? You do it by, by appealing to the prurient interest that all of us have in the reptilian core of our brain for sex and celebrity gossip. So they're giving us Michael Jackson and Lacey Peterson and Kobe Bryant and, you know, and they're not telling us that one out of every six American women now has so much mercury in her body that it's dangerous for her to have children. And they're not telling us that the reason all these kids are gasping for breath because of asthma is because of policies of this president. And we are today the best entertained and the least informed people on the face of the earth because of the American press. And, you know, as I said, there has been a profound, there's been a profound diminution in quality of life in our country. And I'm not, and I talk about this, you know, how the president's policies, from all, because of the chokehold that all these various industries now have on the, on the, on the government, the nuclear industry and the chemical industry, uh, uh, industrial meat production, corporate agriculture, and many, many others have on this administration and on Congress, and how they've used that power to, uh, uh, to their own benefit and to the great detriment of the American people and cause diminution of quality of life. I'm going to just talk about one industry enough for the, tonight for the sake of, of time, just one of the industries, just the impacts that decisions to benefit that industry have had on the American people over the last four years that you can see in your daily quality of life. I have four, uh, three sons who have asthma. One out of every four black children now in our cities now has asthma. We don't know why we're having this epidemic of pediatric asthma, whether it's pesticides in our food or hormones or something that's making children come out of their mother's wombs with their immune systems haywire and asthma and food allergies, which are connected, which have quintupled over the past decades and, and doubled again over the last five years. We don't know why exactly it's happening, but we do know that asthma attacks are caused primarily by bad air, by ozone and particulates, and that the principal source of those materials in our atmosphere are 1,100 coal-burning power plants that are burning coal illegally. It's been illegal for 15 years. They were supposed to have cleaned up. Many of them did. 1,100 of them did not. The Clinton administration was prosecuting the worst 75 of those plants. Had another 52 under investigation. But this is an industry that donated $48 million to this president and the Republican Party during the 2000 cycle and have given $58 million since. And one of the first things the Bush administration did when it came into office was to order the Justice Department and EPA to drop all those lawsuits. The, the top three enforcers at EPA all resigned their jobs in protests. Bruce Buckheit, Sylvia Lawrence, Eric Schaefer. The, these are people that served through multiple administrations, you know, Republican and Democrat, Reagan and Bush, et cetera. Uh, and the Justice Department attorney charged with enforcing the cases said that this had never happened before in American history, where a presidential candidate 
accepts money from criminals under or uh, under investigation or criminal indictment and then orders those indictments and investigations drops when he achieves office. And you remember how indignant the national press got when Bill Clinton pardoned Mark Rich, but Mark Rich never killed anybody. And according to EPA's own website, these plants kill, just these plants, just the criminal exceedances from just those plants kill 5,500 Americans every year. And then the president went and tore the heart out of the Clean Air Act, abolished the new source rule, the heart and soul of the act, the most fundamental, important uh, rule in that act, which is the rule that required those plants to clean up 15 years ago. So now they will never have to clean up. And, uh, you know, we're living in a science fiction nightmare where my children and the children of millions of other Americans are being brought into a world where the air is too poisonous for them to breathe because somebody gave money to a politician. About three months ago, the EPA announced that in 19 states, it is now unsafe to eat any freshwater fish in the state because of mercury contamination. The mercury is coming from those same 1,100 coal-burning power plants. In 48 states, it's now unsafe to eat either some or most of the fish. In fact, the only two states where all the fish are still safe to eat are Alaska and Wyoming, where the Republican-controlled legislature refused to appropriate the money to test the fish. In all the other states, some, all, or most of the fish are unsafe to eat. We know a lot about mercury that we didn't know a few years ago. We know, for example, as I said a moment ago, that one out of every six American women now has so much mercury in her womb that her children are at risk for a grim inventory of diseases, autism, blindness, mental retardation, heart, liver, and kidney disease. I have so much mercury in my body, I got my levels tested recently, and they're double the levels considered safe. I was told by Dr. David Carpenter, who's the national, and this is just from eating fish, who's the national authority on mercury contamination, that a woman with my levels of mercury in her blood would have children with cognitive impairment. And I said to him, you mean she might have? And he said, no, the science is very certain today. She, her children would have cognitive impairment, brain damage. He estimated a permanent IQ loss in those children of five to seven points. Well, today there's 630,000 children born in this country every year who've been exposed to dangerous levels of mercury in their mother's wombs. And all these diseases that are associated with mercury poisoning, like speech delay, ADD, um, and autism, have, have, you know, in 1970, mercury is cumulative in the environment. More and more of it is, is in the environment. In 1970, one out of every 2,500 children had autism in this country. Today, one out of every 166. And one out of every six children have some kind of learning impairment, which is part of that family, that continuum of diseases that are affected by mercury. Um, and, you know, again, we're living in a world where, you know, where a, a country where my children, the children of most Americans, can now no longer safely engage in the seminal primal activity of American youth, which is to go fishing with their father and mother and come home and eat the fish because somebody gave money to a politician. The Clinton administration, recognizing the gravity of this national health epidemic, ordered or reclassified mercury as a hazardous pollutant under the Clean Air Act. That triggered a requirement that all of those companies remove 90% of the mercury within three and a half years. It, it would have cost them less than 1% of plant revenues. The technology is there. We use it in Massachusetts. It's already mandated there. It's mandated in Europe. It's widespread technology, well-known. 
um, it was a great deal for the American people. It's still billions of dollars for that industry, and this is the industry that donated $100 million to this president. And about eight weeks ago, the White House announced that it was abolishing the Clinton-era rules and substituted instead rules that were written by utility industry lawyers that will require the industry to never have to clean up the mercury. The new rules say on their face that the mercury has to be cleaned up, uh, only 70% of it, and not until 15 years from now, which by itself is outrageous. But uh, they, the utility lawyers who wrote the new rules wove so many loopholes into the, them that, that, that the rules will not stand up in court and that the industry will be able to challenge them deliberately. They did this. Uh, they'll be able to challenge them forever and they'll never have to remove any mercury, in fact. Uh, and, you know, the, the lawyers who wrote this, this new um, provision, incidentally, you know, in our American democracy, up until this administration, it's been the case uh, that government lawyers write regulations and government, you know, ec economists and, and scientists. But in this case, the administration has, in, and many others, has invited utility lawyers and polluter lawyers into the back halls of government to actually write the regulations. In this, this case, the regulations were written by a law firm called Lathan and Watkins, which is the most notorious of all the utility law firms. It wrote, represented all of those, the bad guys, the 75, most of the 75 polluters who were let off the hook. And um, the chief lobbyist for that law firm was until recently a man named Jeffrey Homestead, who is now the head of the air division at EPA. I, I, I live two hours south of the Adirondack Mountains. I take my kids fishing and hunting and hiking and camping there. This is the oldest wilderness on the face of the earth. I, it's been protected as forever wild since 1888. We had a right, the American people, to believe that generations of our citizens would be able to enjoy those pristine lakes and those boreal forests unspoiled. But today, one-fifth of the lakes in the Adirondacks is sterilized from acid rain. The acid rain is coming from those same 1,100 coal-burning plants, and that same acid rain has destroyed the forest cover on the high peaks of the Appalachians from Georgia all the way up into northern Quebec. And this administration has put the brakes on the statutory requirement that they clean up the acid rain. And this year, for the first time since the passage of the Clean Air Act, sulfur dioxide levels went up in our atmosphere, not just a little, but astronomically by full 4%, directly because of the policies of this administration. I was, a year and a half ago in May, I flew over the coal fields of the Appalachians, uh, Kentucky and West Virginia, where most of this coal is coming from. And I saw something that, if the American people could see it, there would be a revolution in this country. We are cutting down the Appalachian Mountains with these giant machines called drag lines. They're 22 stories high, one machine. It cost a half a billion dollars for one machine. And they practically dispense with the need for human labor, which, of course, is the point. I remember a conversation I had with my father in 1967 when he was fighting strip mining in Appalachia. And he said, they're not only destroying the environment, but they're going to permanently impoverish those communities because there's no way to make a living off a of moonscape. And, uh, and he said, the reason they're doing it is to break the unions. And at that time, he was right. At that time, there was 114,000 unionized mine workers in West Virginia taking the coal out of the ground. Today, we're, we're, they're, they're, they're producing the same amount of coal, but there's only 11,000 miners, and they're not unionized because they're strip miners. And these machines with, with 2,500 tons of dynamite that are exploded in West Virginia every day 
blow the tops off the mountains. They, by the time Bush leaves office, we will have flattened a section of the, of the Appalachians the size of Delaware. These historic landscapes that are, you know, the, 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 the wandering places of Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett and the source of our values and our culture and our, our, our virtues, our character as a people, we're cutting them to the ground. They blow off the tops to get at the coal seams beneath, then they scrape the rock and debris and rubble into the adjacent river valleys and flatten out these mountains, and they bury the rivers under hundreds of feet of rubble. They've already buried 1,200 miles of America's rivers and streams. And it's illegal, of course, it's all totally illegal. You cannot, in the United States of America, take rock and debris and rubble and dump it into a water body without a Clean Water Act permit, and you could never get a permit to do it. So we sued them. Joe Lovett, a great attorney and friend of mine, and we won the lawsuit. Judge Charles Hayden, a great old uh, federal judge from West Virginia, and he said just what I said. He said, it's all illegal. You cannot do this. You can't put rock and debris and rubble. He, in fact, asked the Corps of Engineers colonel during the, during the trial, he said, because the Corps of Engineers was, was, was granting these phony rubber stamp permits that you just you get by mail, and he, says, and he said to the Corps of Engineers, how did you do How did you guys start doing this? And the Corps colonel said to him, I don't know. We just kind of oozed into it. And uh, Judge Hayden said, it's all illegal, and he enjoined all mountaintop mining. Two days from when we got that decision, Peabody Coal met with, with the, in the White House with the Bush administration, Dick Cheney, and they changed, the White House changed the one word of the Clean Water Act, the, the interpretation of the word fill. And that changed 30 years of interpretation of the Clean Air Act to make it legal now, which it is in the United States, to dump rock, debris, rubble, solid waste, garbage, and construction debris, and any other kind of solid waste into any water body in the United States, in California or anywhere else, without a Clean Water Act permit. All you need is one of these rubber stamp permits from the Corps of Engineers. So this is what we're dealing with. It's not you know, just the environment that is on the chopping block. It's American democracy. This is rank corruption. And, uh, and, you know, th this administration, <laughs> this administration has done a, you know, a great job of, along industry, let me put it this way, industry and its indentured servants in this administration have done a great job, you know, over the past decade of, of marginalizing, marginalizing environmentalists as, as radicals, as, as tree huggers, as, as pagans who worship trees and sacrifice people. But there is nothing radical about clean air and clean water for our children. And we are not protecting the environment for the sake of the fishes and the birds and for nature. We're protecting it for our own sake because we recognize that nature is the infrastructure of our communities and that if we want to meet our obligation as a generation, as a civilization, as a nation, which is to create communities that provide our children with the same opportunities for dignity and enrichment as the communities that our parents gave us. We've got to start by protecting our environmental infrastructure, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the wildlife, the landscapes, the public lands that, that enrich us, that connect us to our past, that, that, uh, that provide context to our communities, that are the sources of our values, our virtues, our, our character as a people. And if you talk to the people in the White House, who are or on Capitol Hill. Can I get some more water? <laughs> the people who are promoting this kind of rollbacks, 
what they invariably say is, they'll say, they say, well, the time has come, the time has come in our nation's history where we have to choose between economic prosperity on the one hand, thank you. Thank you. Um, that, that we have to choose between economic prosperity on the one hand and environmental protection on the other. And that is a false choice. In 100% of the situations, good environmental policy is identical. And I'll repeat that. In every situation, good environmental policy is identical to good economic policy. If, if we want to measure our economy, and this is how we ought to be measuring it, based upon how it produces jobs and the dignity of jobs over the generations, over the long term, and how it preserves the value of the assets of our community. If, on the other hand, we want to do what they've been urging us to do in this White House, which is to treat the planet as if it were business and liquidation, convert our natural resources to cash as quickly as possible, have a few years of pollution-based prosperity, we can generate an instantaneous cash flow and the illusion of a prosperous economy, but our children are gonna pay for our joyride and they're gonna pay for it with denuded landscapes and poor health and huge cleanup costs that are gonna amplify over time and that they'll never be able to pay. Environmental injury is deficit spending. It's a way of loading the costs of our generation's prosperity onto the backs of our children. And You know, one of the things that I said to the political leaders who I just spoke to is that, and I, you know, I've been going around for the last several years making this argument to people, confronting the argument that an investment in our environment is a diminishment of our nation's wealth. It's not a diminishment of our wealth. It's an investment in infrastructure. The same as investing in telecommunications or road construction. It's an investment that we have to make if we're going to ensure the economic vitality of, of the next generation and ultimately our own as well. And, you know, I want to say this, that there's, a, there's no stronger advocate for free market capitalism than myself. I believe that the free market is the most efficient and democratic way to distribute the goods of the land. And that the best thing that could happen to the environment is if we had true free market capitalism in this country, which we don't. We, you know... I talked to Jim Hightower the other day, and I was talking about the free market, and he was saying, yeah, the free market is a great thing. We should try it sometime. We don't have it in, in, in the United States of America. And, you know, in a true free market economy, the free market promotes efficiency, and efficiency means the elimination of waste, and waste is pollution. And, you know, if, if the free market also would cause us to properly value our natural resources, and it's the undervaluation of those resources that causes us to destroy them unnecessarily and, you know, cause environmental injury. But in a true free market economy, you can't make yourself rich without making your neighbors rich and without enriching your community. But what polluters do is they make themselves rich by making everybody else poor. They raise standards of living for themselves by lowering quality of life for everybody else. And they do that by escaping the discipline of the free market. You show me a polluter, I'll show you a subsidy. I'll show you a fat cat using political clout to escape the discipline of the free market and force the public to pay his production costs. That's what all pollution, 100% of it, 
every time, it's the same. It's always a subsidy. It's always somebody shifting their cost to their neighbors. Corporations are externalizing machines. They're constantly trying to figure out ways to get somebody else to pay their cost of production. And the best way to do that for them is through pollution oftentimes, by shifting their cost to the public, by stealing something that belongs to us. You know, the Constitution of the state of New York, like the Constitution of the state of California, says that the fisheries and the water waterways belong to the people of the state. All the states have the same provision in their constitution. It's called the public trust doctrine. It goes back to Roman times. It's in the Code of Justinian. It's in the Magna Carta, those things that are not susceptible to private ownership. But um, uh, the air, the water, the wandering animals, the aquifers, the, the uh, public lands, uh, the things that, that are by their nature part of our community, the commons, the public trust, those things belong to everybody. They don't belong to the governor or the legislature or the corporations. They belong to the people. Everybody has a right to use them. Nobody has a right to use them in a way that will diminish or injure their use and enjoyment by others. That is the law. And But what polluters do is they figure out ways to privatize the commons. That's what pollution is too, stealing from the public. In other words, it's a way of shifting the cost, robbing something of value from the public. Today in New York State, I can't eat the fish from the Hudson River. You know, I represent the fishermen who fish the Hudson River, but their, their fishery was stolen from them by the General Electric Company who put PCBs in the river and shifted its cost to them, which they're now paying. And we can't eat most of the fish in New York State because these coal-burning utilities, you know, in the Ohio Valley, which have put mercury in the fish, so that I can't, I buy a fishing license every year for 30 bucks, and yet I can no longer eat the fish because somebody stole, somebody allowed, the, a government official on the take allowed these polluters to steal the fish from me. And that's what all pollution is. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an evasion of free market capitalism by shifting the cost to somebody else. When these coal burning utilities put their mercury in the air, which poisons our women and children, when they put acid rain in the air, which destroys our lakes, our recreational facilities, the, the, uh, the, the, the great forests and the, and the high mountain peaks, when they put uh, uh, ozone and particulates, which poison 18,000 people a year. You know, if you go to EPA's website, you will see today that that single decision by President Bush to abandon news source review kills 18,000 Americans every single year, six times the number of people who were killed in the World Trade Center attack. That should be on the front page of every newspaper in this country every single day. But the press has ignored it. And the fact, you know, when, when, uh, when, when there was this anthrax scare and, they, and there was, you know, six people killed nationally by anthrax and we had to hear about it every single day because, of course, terrorism is the same as sex and celebrity gossip. It gets viewers and sells product. Um, and, but, but, you know, these coal-burning utilities have poisoned one out of every six American women. And they poison most of the fish in our country. What's worse? You know, what's worse, what the terrorists did with those six, you know, people are poisoning one out of every six American women, which the coal-burning utilities are doing. And, you know, this should be on the headlines every single day. That's a, in terms of national security threat. But um, the, the, as I said, when, all the, when they put the mercury into the air, when they put the acid rain, they are imposing costs on the rest of us that should, in a true free market economy, be reflected in the price of that company's product when it makes it to the market.
But what they do, what the coal burning utilities do, which is what all polluters do, is they use political clout to escape the discipline of the free market. Action force the public to pay their production costs. And what all the federal environmental laws are meant to do is to restore free market capitalism in our country by forcing actors in the marketplace to pay the true costs of bringing their product to market. And what we do, and we have tonight, I want to introduce something, somebody here. We have 135 river keepers around the country, and today, you know, today here we have Dave Yearsley, who's the, who's the Petaluma uh, river keeper. Dave, will you stand up? So, and what? You know, what we do, what the river keepers do, we patrol the waterways and we track down polluters and sue them. And what, you know, and, and what Dave does and what I do, we don't even consider ourselves environmentalists anymore. We're free marketeers. We go out into the marketplace and we catch the cheaters and we set the polluters and we say to them, we're going to force you to internalize your costs the same way that you're internalizing your profits. Because as long as somebody is cheating the free market, it distorts the whole marketplace. And none of us gets the advantages of the efficiencies and the, de and the democracy that the free market otherwise promises our country. And what we have to understand in America is that there is a huge difference between free market capitalism, which democratizes the nation, which makes us more efficient and more prosperous, and the kind of corporate crony capitalism, which has been embraced by this administration, which is as antithetical to democracy and prosperity and efficiency in America as it is in Nigeria. And, corporations don't want, there's nothing wrong with corporations. They're a good thing. They drive our economy, they're the machine that drives our economy. They shouldn't, however, be running our government because corporations don't want democracy and they don't want free markets. They want profits. And the best way for them to get profits is to get use, you know, our, 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 our campaign finance system, which is just a system of legalized bribery, to get a hold of a government official and then use that government official to dismantle the marketplace, to give them monopoly control and to privatize the commons and steal it from the public. And that's what they're all up to, of course. I mean, not all of them, but that's what they have to be up to because that's what our, the economic system encouraged them to do as long as they can get away with it. And you know, the, it's not their fault. That's what they're. That's what they're programmed to do. What we need is a government that's strong enough to stand up to them and, and draw the boundaries of regulation so that they continue to drive our, our our economy, but they don't run our government. And you know, this government has been. This White House has been graded at you know at, at advancing this bugaboo that you know of of big government. That that's the real threat to our communities and to American democracy. And it's true that big government ultimately can threaten our democracy. But the much larger threat to American democracy is excessive corporate power. And from the beginning of our national history, our greatest political leaders have warned the American public against that, against, against, the, against the excess of corporate power. Republicans and Democrats, um, the, uh, Teddy Roosevelt said that this country would never be destroyed by a foreign enemy and Osama bin Laden. Um, but he warned us that our democratic institutions would be subverted by malefactors of great wealth who would erode them from within. Dwight Eisenhower, another Republican, 
during his most famous speech ever, warned Americans against the domination by the military-industrial complex. Uh, Fra uh, Abraham Lincoln, the greatest Republican in our history, during the height of the Civil War in 1863, said, I have the South in front of me, and I have the bankers behind me. And for my country, I fear the bankers more. And, and Franklin Roosevelt said during World War II that the domination of government by corporate power is the essence of fascism. And Benito Mussolini, <laughs> Mussolini, who had an insider's view of, of that process, uh, said that, complained that fascism should not be called fascism. It should be called corporatism because it was the merger of state and corporate power. And we have to understand in our country that communism is the domination of business by government and that fascism is the domination of government by business. And what we have to do is walk that narrow trail in between, which is free market capitalism and democracy, where we hold big business and big corporations at bay with our right hand and big government at bay with our left. And in order to do that, we need an informed public and we need a free and independent and vigorous and aggressive press that's willing to speak truth to power instead of be stenographers for the White House. And And we need public officials who are willing to stand up for themselves and stand up for the people. And um, you know, um, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, saying that that you know Dick Cheney is Heinrich Himmler or, or Goebbels, but but oppression and the erosion of our rights is part of a continuum, and we have to understand clearly every stage of that continuum, and we have to, you know, be willing to stand up and act against it when we see, you know, whatever the first signs or the second signs or the third signs of that kind of progression are, and you know, what what do um, what do corporations do? when they obtain control of government, of plunder. That's what they do. And you know, if you looked in the 1920s in, and the 1930s in Europe, in, in Spain and, and uh, Italy and Germany, and you know, the, in Mussolini and Hitler were elected in democracies, in capitalist democracies. Hitler was elected by the most educated people on the face of the earth. And I, I'll tell you what happened with them. They, you know, they came from these right-wing, fundamental Christian, uh, crazy groups that, um, that nobody believed had any chance of ever gaining any kind of political foothold in those democracies. And all of a sudden, they made these marriages with industry. And they started, the industry began pouring in huge amounts of money and lucre into these you know, marginalized, aberrant groups. And they suddenly were able to purchase political power. And the first thing that Hitler and Mussolini and Franco did when they took power was put industrialists in charge of all of the ministries in government as a payback. And they, of course, then began mounting you know, these small wars and giving themselves no-bid contracts and privatizing the commons, et cetera, and creating monopolies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when corporations take over government, they plunder. That is the whole point. And, um, and you know, this government that we have here is the government of plunder. And we saw how they took a $5.6 trillion, 10-year Bill Clinton surplus, and turned it in four years into a $5 trillion deficit, a $10.6 trillion shift in wealth from the pockets of our children, from our uh, national treasury, 
into the pockets of the very rich, the wealthiest Americans, and their corporate paymasters. And we saw how they plundered the largest asset that we had as a nation, which was the goodwill and love of the people all over the earth for the United States of America. And when I was a little boy, I traveled across this country with my Uncle Jack, with President Kennedy, and I traveled all over Europe with my father. And I went to Czechoslovakia with him, and to Poland, and to Italy, and Greece, and, and France, and Germany, and England. And everywhere we went, we were met by these vast crowds of people, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people, who came out just to be near an American politician because they loved our country and they were starved for our leadership. They looked to us for moral authority. Uh, they named their streets proudly after our political leaders, Washington, Jefferson, Jackson, Roosevelt, Kennedy, Lincoln. Uh, and I remember the day after 9-11 when the headline on the biggest newspaper in France, Le Monde, was we are all Americans now. And it took us 230 years of visionary disciplined leadership by Republican and Democratic presidents to build up those reservoirs of public trust, of moral authority, of love by all the countries around the world. And in four short years, this government, through monumental incompetence and arrogance, has destroyed it all. We are today. We are today the most hated nation on the earth. There are five and a half billion people around the planet who fear and despise the United States of America. And that, to me, is the bitterest pill to swallow because I saw the potential for American leadership to do good things around this planet in the eyes and the face of all those people that I saw when I was a little boy. And we've destroyed these wonderful alliances, these beautiful alliances that we built after World War II, we've shattered them and the respect that we have among the modern Arab nations and, and you know, of course, the, one of the largest assets that we have, and you could argue the, the, the most important, Teddy Roosevelt said it was the most important, which is our public lands, our environment, the air we breathe, the water we drink, all of the things, the sacred places that make us so proud to be American and that define us as a people, that connect us to our past and... Uh, and also, you know, the, the, the thing that makes us proudest to be American, which is our values. And this is a government that claims to be the government of values. But every value that they claim to represent is just a hollow facade that masks the one value that they're really considered worth fighting for, which is corporate profit-taking. They claim... They claim to be conservatives, but they have torn the conserve out of conservatism. They claim to like free markets, but they despise the free market. What they want is corporate welfare, capitalism for the poor, and socialism for the rich. What they, they claim, they claim to like property rights, but they only, when they say property rights, they really mean only one thing, the right of a polluter to use his property to destroy his neighbor's property and to destroy the public property. And they claim to like law and order, but they're the first ones to let the corporate lawbreakers off the hook. And they claim to like states' rights and local control, but they only like states' rights and local control when it means sweeping away the obstacles to corporate profit-taking at the local level. And, you know, um, the, the state of California, this is just one of many, many, many hundreds of examples recently, and I saw another one last night when, you know, the, uh, uh, Bill Frist is trying to put a, uh, a provision into the Homeland Security Bill 
that would stop all of the states from, uh, from, uh, from excluding thimerosal, which is mercury, from children's vaccines to protect the mercury industry. And, uh, you know, in our vaccines of all this mercury, it's still, even the flu vaccine still has it in, and that's one of the reasons we've got this huge autism epidemic in our country. Um, and the, uh, but, but the legislature here in California passed, and my cousin Arnold Schwarzenegger signed the toughest automobile emissions bill in 50 states because the federal bill, the federal laws, were not protecting the car culture of, of California from uh, the diseases that are caused by automobile emissions. 10% of the children in San Bernardino have permanent lung damage that will hound them to the rest of the days and cause all kinds of diseases and, and, and problems with those children. And this is true, this is the rule now in most of the cities in California. And so the state passed these laws and now, and now Detroit is threatening to sue the state of California. And guess what, the federal government is now making noises that it's going to join Detroit in the suit against the state of California. And I see the same thing all the time with, you know, when local people in, in North Carolina try to erect barriers, zoning ordinance, et cetera, to the hog industry, these big hog sheds coming in and destroying their shattering rural communities, the first person they hear from is Ted Olson and the federal government saying you can't interfere with federal commerce or we're going to come down like you on you like a hammer. The same thing in West Virginia in the coal fields when they try to zone out Peabody and Massey Coal. So they don't care about local control, except when it means getting rid of the barriers to corporate profit-taking at the local level. And they claim, they claim to like Christianity, but they have violated every one of the manifold mandates of the Christian faith, that we care for the environment, that we act as stewards, and that we treat our children and future generations with responsibility. And I, you know, I said before that we're not protecting the environment for the sake of the fishes and the birds, we're protecting it for our own sake. Because we recognize that nature enriches us, it enriches us economically, yes, the base of our economy, and we ignore that at our peril. The economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment, but it also enriches us aesthetically and recreationally and culturally and historically and spiritually. And human beings have other appetites besides money. And if we don't feed them, we're not going to grow up. We're not going to become the kind of beings that our creator intended us to become. When we destroy nature, we diminish ourselves. We impoverish our children. We're not fighting to preserve those ancient forests in the Pacific Northwest or the Sierra Nevada, as Rush Limbaugh loves to say, for the sake of a spotted owl. We're preserving those forests because we believe the trees have more value to humanity standing than they would have if we cut them down. And I'm not fighting. I'm not fighting for the Hudson River for the sake of the shad or the sturgeon or the striped bass, thank you. But because I believe that my children will be richer and my community and I will be richer if I live in a world where there are shad and sturgeon and stripers on the Hudson. And the same with Dave Yearsley on the Petaluma. You know, I, and, and I want my kids to be able to look out on the river and see the tiny boats of the commercial fishermen, the traditional gear commercial fishermen of the Hudson, who I've represented and fought for as their attorney for 21 years to try to preserve their culture and their livelihoods and their property. And 
I, and these are, you know, we have the oldest commercial fishery in, in, on the Hudson River in America. It's 350 years old. The people I represent, many of them come from families that have been fishing the river continuously since Dutch colonial times, using the same fishing methods that were taught by the Algonquin Indians to the original Dutch settlers of New Amsterdam and then passed down through the generations. And I want my kids to be able to see those men and women out on the river in their tiny open boats with the ash poles and the gill nets and be able to touch them when they come to shore to wait out the tides or to, to repair their nets. And in doing that, connect themselves to 350 years of New York State history and understand that they're part of something larger than themselves. They're part of a continuum. They're part of a community. I don't want my children to grow up in a world where there are no commercial fishermen left on the Hudson, where it's all Gordon Seafood and Unilever in 400-ton factory trawlers 100 miles offshore, strip mining the ocean with no interface with humanity or with our communities, and where there are no family farmers left in our country, where it's all Smithfield and Cargill and premium standard farms raising animals in factories and treating tiny cages where they can't turn around their whole lives and where they live short, miserable lives, dosed with hormones and antibiotics, and where, where they treat, their, treat the animals and the humans who work for them with unspeakable cruelty, and where we've lost touch with the seasons and the tides and, and the things that connect us to the 10,000 generations of human beings that were here before there were laptops, and that connect us ultimately to God. And I don't believe, I don't believe that nature is God or that we ought to be worshiping it as God. But I do believe that it's the way that God communicates to us most forcefully. And God talks to human beings through many vectors, through each other, through organized religion, through the great books of those religions, through wise people, and through art and literature and, and music and poetry and dance and, and architecture, but nowhere with such force and detail and clarity and texture and grace and joy as through creation. You know, we don't know Michelangelo by reading his biography. We know him by looking at the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And we know our creator best by immersing ourselves in creation, and particularly wilderness, which is the undiluted work of the creator. And, you know, if you look at every religious tradition throughout the history of mankind, the essential epiphany always occurs in the wilderness. Buddha had to go to the wilderness to experience self-realization and nirvana. Muhammad had to go to the wilderness of Mount Hera in 629 and climb to the summit and wrestle an angel in the middle of the night to have the Koran squeezed out of him. Moses had to go to the wilderness of Mount Sinai for 40 days to receive the commandments. The uh, Jews had to spend 40 years wandering the wilderness in order to purge themselves of the 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Christ had to go into the wilderness for 40 days to discover his divinity for the first time. His mentor was John the Baptist who lived in a cave in the Jordan Valley and dressed in the skins of wild beasts and ate locusts and the honey of wild beasts. And all of Christ's parables were taken from nature. I am the vine, you are the branches, the mustard seed, the little swallows, the scattering the seeds on the fallow ground, the lilies of the field. He called himself a fisherman, a farmer, a vineyard keeper, a shepherd. The reason he did that, and it's the same reason that all the Old Testament prophets and the Quranic prophets did the same thing, and all the Quran and, and Old Testament and Talmudic prophets, all of them came out of the wilderness, and all of them were shepherds. And that daily con connection to nature 
gave them a special access to the wisdom of the Almighty. And they all used parables from nature to teach the wisdom of God. And the reason Christ did that, like they all did, was because that's how he stayed in touch with the people. He was saying things that were revolutionary, that contradicted everything they'd heard from the literate, sophisticated people of their time. And they would have dismissed him as a quack. But they were able to confirm the wisdom of his parables through their own observations of the fishes and the birds. And they were able to say, he's not telling us something new. He's simply illuminating something very, very old. Messages that were written into creation by the creator at the beginning of time. And we haven't been able to discern or decipher them until the prophets came who had immersed themselves in the language of wilderness. And they were able to come back into the cities and explain to us the wisdom of God that was written in the wilderness, in that, 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 uh, that paper of wilderness. And, you know, the same thing is true with our country. Our, our values come out of wilderness. Frederick Jackson Turner, who was our greatest American historian, said that American democracy came out of the wilderness. And from the beginning of, of our national history, our greatest political leaders and social leaders and, and philosophers and cultural writers and poets, etc., were all constantly telling the American people, you don't have to worry because you don't have the 1,500 years of culture that they have in Europe because you have this relationship to the land and particularly to wilderness, which is, you know, which is the un, un, unspoiled, undiluted work of, of, the, of God. And that is going to be the source of your values, or your virtues, your character, your identity as a people. And you know, if you look at every valid piece of American, a classic American literature and, and poetry and art, uh, the, 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 the unifying theme is that nature is the critical defining element of American culture. And, you know, today we have, a, you know, an administration that doesn't recognize that. They look out over these green landscapes and over the Grand Sequoia National Monument of the Sierra Nevada, and they see only one thing, which is money. And they don't understand that this is where our values reside. And when they cut down those trees, they are also eroding the source of America's values. And, you know, um, this is an administration that has no idea what it is that makes us proud to be American and makes America, you know, worth fighting for. And I... I, um, you know, I know Donald Rumsfeld, and I've eaten lunch and dinner with him at my mom's house on numerous occasions, and he's a very charming, you know, affable, uh, sweet, sweet man. Um, if you're not in, you know, Abu Ghraib or Guantanamo or something. But uh, he... Uh, I, you know, I see him on TV now, and I see him, you know, wearing his suits, and he looks so great, and he, and I say, you know, he's had all the advantages, the best advantages that our country has, and he goes to our churches, and, you know, he's gone to the best schools, and, um, and then I see these, uh, these memos that went back and forth between him and Roberta Gonzalez, and, you know, the attorney general, the attorney general, and, and, uh, and Paul Wolfkowitz, Todd debating about how much it's permissible for Americans to torture other people. And I say, you know, to myself, I'm astounded. I say, you know, how did these people miss the point that torture is not an American family value? And, you know, all of these values they've missed. And I often say to myself, I say, you know, how do they get so many draft dodgers in one place. And, you know, they, 
They got all of these, these chicken hawks, uh, uh, Dick Cheney and George Bush and Paul Wolfkowitz and Richard Pearl and, and you know, on and on. And they're all their buddies, Dennis Hastert and Tom DeLay and, and Rush Limbaugh, all of them. And I, I say, well, you know, there's a lot of people who evaded the Vietnam War because they had moral qualms. Most of them had moral qualms about the war, but not these people. They evaded the war. They loved the war. They wanted us to be in Vietnam. They just wanted somebody else to fight it. Because, and the reason for that is, they don't understand what it is about America that makes our country worth fighting and worth dying for. And our country is, this country is worth fighting for. And it is worth dying for. Um, but they missed the point of America. They've completely missed the point. And, You know, the message that I would leave all of you is that, yeah, it is worth fighting for, and we need to fight to get it back. And that, you know, Teddy Roosevelt said, Teddy Roosevelt said that, that, um, that the principal role of government is, the, is, is to protect the environment. The only role that, that is greater than that, the only thing that government does that is more important than that, is to defend the nation against dissolution during times of war. But otherwise, there is no more important role of government than protecting the environment for future generations, because that is really the, that's the central thing that makes us you know, a country and that makes us a community. It's the common assets of all of us. And the best measure of how democracy is functioning is how it distributes the goods of the land. Does it keep them in the hands of the people, or does it allow them to, you know, to be controlled by these giant accretions of power? You know, that, that General Electric Company now owns all the fish in the Hudson River. And these big polluters are now privatizing our air and, you know, and privatizing the commons. And what we need to do is to keep the commons in the hands of the public. And I'll close with the proverb from the Lakota people that's been expropriated to some extent by the environmental movement where they said we didn't inherit this planet from our ancestors. We borrow it from our children. And I would add to that that if we don't return to them something that is roughly the equivalent of what we receive, that they'll have the right to ask us some, some really difficult questions. Thank you all very much for having me here and for sitting through this here in the room. Thank you. You have been listening to Robert F. Kennedy, Jr., speaking in Marin County, California, on March 4th, 2005. I hope you enjoyed it. This is Carmen LaSalle for San Francisco Liberation Radio. San Francisco Liberation Radio is a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week internet radio station playing politics and music. Uh, we have a website, www.liberationradio.net, where you can get the schedule. Thanks for listening. Music is by Chris Potter and Late Bake Productions.